All right. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13 is where we will be this evening. So I pull out my notes here. Okay, so um, as we begin, I want to just uh, talk about a few announcements uh, for the near future. Um, today, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, next Sunday, uh, I was looking at the wrong spot here, next Sunday will be the last meeting that we have here at Bethel for the duration of the summer. Okay, so we are going to pare down, uh, save the church a bit of money. Um, I have a couple of options that I'm um, exploring, a couple irons in the fire. So I will announce next week where we will be for the duration of the summer. So next week will be our last week here. If you happen to show up here um, in the weeks thereafter, call me and I'll tell you exactly where we are. All right, so... Um, we're going to relaunch back here in August once the fall semester begins, um, but uh, we're, we're going to save some money by not meeting here. Now, with that being said, um, I'm trying to ensure that we have a plan in place that will meet all the needs of the members of our congregation, and at the very top of that list is a revamped children's ministry strategy. Uh, that specifically addresses the baby boom that we have had um, in our church. I think uh, I counted seven babies, six or seven babies, um, born within the last year and a half, um, including the one complaining back there. Um, So uh, we're trying to put together a plan to make sure that our nursery needs are met so that all of us families can be uh, together over the summer. So again, I'll be announcing that um, in the near future. And I also want us to view this summer as a time where hopefully we're going to build some momentum. Um, I don't want us to look at this summer as a step back. I want us to look at this summer as a momentum builder. So I want to try to do things to make sure that this is an active summer for our church. And that includes some, uh, uh, some new events and ideas. The first of which is an event that I'm calling Heathen's Brunch. Okay, Heathen's Brunch. And the first Heathen's Brunch will be on Sunday, June 27th, the last Sunday of this month at my house, okay? So this is a perfect thing to invite friends to. If you're talking to a coworker or um, one of your buddies around town and you say, hey, why don't you come with me to Heathen's Brunch? Now they may ask you, are you trying to imply something by inviting me to something called Heathen's Brunch? You can say, yes, I'm trying to imply that Heathen's like brunch, Right? All of us like brunch. Um, and of course, the reason why I am calling it Heathen's Brunch is because uh, this is a meal that is taking place during the time where normal people go to church, which is on Sunday mornings. And it's all the heathens that are out on Sunday mornings, which includes us. And we like brunch, right? Everyone wants to be eating brunch on a Sunday morning. So why not do it together, right? So Heathen's Brunch will take place on the last Sunday of every month. Okay, so Sunday, June 27th, my house, 10.30 a.m. And of course, each week I will be reminding you um, that that will be taking place and imploring you to invite every single person you know, all right? 
Some of the other things that we have uh, looking forward to on the calendar this summer. Um, first is a baptism. There's a, a, a few new um, souls that have been saved, and so we want to make sure that we baptize them quickly um, before they change their minds. Um, so we're going to be having a baptism service at some point once we can uh, work everyone's calendar so that we can be all together. Then another thing that we have uh, looking forward to this summer, uh, speaking of all the babies, is uh, an opportunity for baby dedication. And so that will also include some of the older children, like um, my middle child, who has never been dedicated to the Lord. And by God, we are dedicating her to the Lord. So uh, that's going to be taking place at some point. We're going to try to have a couple of times where we get together for things like a cookout, some service projects, hopefully, that we'll be doing this summer, um, other fellowship events, and, of course, Heathen's Brunch on the last Sunday of each month. So, all that to say, I'm really looking forward to all that we have planned together this summer. And again, I'm hoping that this is an opportunity to build momentum as we um, go together into the fall. Okay? Uh, so keep uh, posted on our Facebook page, um, and uh, we'll be letting you guys know as, as things are coming up. Um, next week, also, we'll be starting um, our next sermon series. Um, and some of you were here last year for one of my favorite series that I've ever taught um, called Why Is This Even In Here? And in that series, we looked at some of these strange, weird, hard to understand, and places in the Bible, okay? There are some places in the Bible that are very, very interesting for uh, different reasons. Other places in the Bible that don't seem to be that interesting at all, Um, places that are confusing, places that bring up a lot of doubts or fears or questions, and so we, we had this really fun series last summer where we asked the question, why is this even in here? Um, And hopefully that was as much of a blessing to you as it was to me. And so after some prayer, I decided, hey, you know what, let's do a part two. Um, Because one series could not possibly cover all of the weird stuff that's in here. Um, And and hopefully you will see that uh, the fact that it's weird um, is part of what makes it beautiful. And, And we see the gospel in so many incredible ways in some unexpected places. So next uh, week, we'll be starting part two of Why Is This Even In Here? So tonight, we are coming to a close with this series that we've called Replant. And the point of this whole series has been asking the question, how do we become people who are producing the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. How do we become people who are not just sitting in seats, that are actually active for the kingdom of God, that are producing a harvest, that are pushing this thing forward, letting light pierce the darkness? And so first in this series, we talked about the importance of repentance. If you remember, just prior to the series, we had another series called Uproot. And we were specifically looking at repentance in that series. How we can uproot these sins from our lives by the power of the gospel. But then we started this series, Replant, by talking about the fact that we can't just repent from sin. We have to also replace that sin with a dedicated following after Jesus. We can't just stop doing a bad thing. 
we then must start doing the good thing. And that good thing is filling our lives with the word of God, filling our lives with the gospel, filling our time with a dedicated pursuit of Jesus. And then we talked about the fact that surrendering to Jesus means willing to die, willing to die to our flesh die to our sin, die to our own desires. And it is in the, so- the soil of that emptying of ourselves that we can truly grow. That if the seed is willing to die, it can produce a plant that grows. And then after that, we, we spent a few weeks talking about the fact that this process of growing and bearing fruit is not a quick one. It is a long, arduous slow process where change is often imperceptible from day to day. We talked about that this is not a a sprint, it's a marathon. And so we have to be committed for the long haul. In this process, we cannot compromise and take spiritual shortcuts. We have to allow God to grow us slowly. We have to take things one step at a time. We have to fix our eyes on Jesus. We have to listen to his voice. We have to live this life of small steps where we just focus on doing the next right thing. And then last week, we talked about what it means to abide in Christ. What it means for him to abide in us. And how essential it is that his word abides in our hearts. And so tonight, we're going to close with one final thought to drive all of this home, okay? And that thought is this. You are definitely going to be fruitful, but not all fruit is good fruit, okay? I guarantee you, beyond a shadow of a doubt, something will grow out of your life. Some type of fruit is guaranteed to come from your heart, but not all fruit is good fruit. If we were to look at the first few chapters of Genesis, we would immediately see that truth that all of this mess in human history started when Adam and Eve decided to eat the wrong fruit. Okay? Not all fruit is good fruit. In uh, Galatians chapter 5, Paul gives two lists of fruit. And the first list, even though he doesn't use this particular phrase, but he uses this motif in the passage, is, uh, is the fruit of the Spirit. But he first talks about the fruit of the flesh. And the fruit of the flesh, he says, is sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Okay, so these are very obvious outward sins. Obvious fruit of the flesh. And then he compares that and contrasts it with the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So we have in these two lists some very obvious differences. Okay, When we, when we look at these two lists, it, it's not hard to distinguish the difference between these fruits, right? When, when we look at self-control versus outburst of anger. Okay, that, that's pretty clear to us. 
Okay, when, when we look at um, purity versus sexual immorality, that's easy to see. All right? It doesn't take a genius to compare those two and, and see that they're different. And so when we talk about the fact that, that we're all going to grow something, we might think about, okay, well, we can see the obvious changes, the, the obvious differences in these types of fruit. But what about... What about when we see people who seem to be exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit? Yet we know that they are not followers of Jesus. If you're anything like me, I know plenty of non-Christians who are loving people. Who are patient people. More patient than me. Though that is not a very high bar, admittedly. Very kind and gentle people. In a practical sense, these people seem to live the way that Christians are called to live. So what do we do with that? Then there are also people who are sitting in churches, claiming to be Christians, but have never actually surrendered their lives to Jesus. And their lives look indistinguishable from those who have surrendered to Jesus. And then we have this other group of people that you might call church adjacent. Those who are church adjacent are those people who have some type of shallow connection to the church. Maybe they occasionally visit. Um, They are very friendly towards the church and, and to Christianity. Perhaps they support the church's mission in various ways. Perhaps they participate in various forms. But they themselves are not surrendered servants of Christ either. They're, they're sort of near the church, but they're not in the church. And many of these people exhibit outwardly what seem to be the fruit of the Spirit. What do we do with that? Today, in the book of Matthew, Jesus is going to talk about two types of plants that look almost identical to each other but are in fact very different. One is good and the other is poisonous. Now, as I often do, I will be mixing metaphors in this sermon, so bear with me. Um, Because during this sermon, I'm going to use the metaphor of apples, okay? Who likes apples? Anybody? Um, I like apples, not as much as my daughter. My daughter eats apples literally every day, and that's why there are apple cores all over my house. Um, There are many different kinds of apples, many flavors and colors. Most of them are quite delicious. There is, however, one type of apple that you should definitely, definitely avoid. Okay, And you're not going to find it in a grocery store uh, because it has no practical use for us. It is called the manchineel. The manchineel, uh, also known as the beach apple. And it is native to the Caribbean. And also Florida, okay? Florida is its own country, as we all know. It has its own weird ecosystem that is like nowhere else in the world. And that applies to their people. Um, The beach apple is native to the Caribbean and to Florida. Now, the beach apple tree looks like any other apple tree. And the beach apple looks like any other apple. 
other than the fact that it grows near the ocean rather than in a grove of trees. The leaves look like the leaves on an apple tree. The apples look like apples. The tree itself looks like any other tree. But looks can be very, very deceiving. You see, the beech apple has a Spanish name, la manzanilla de la muerte, or in English, the little apple of death. If you are thinking about Disney um, pictures with uh, poison apples, here's where it may have come from, okay? If you were unlucky enough to happen upon a beech apple tree and you saw the fruit and thought, oh, this is, this is a great idea, and you, you picked that fruit and took a bite, you would be greeted first with a very sweet, pleasant taste. But very quickly afterward, your delicious snack will start torturing you. Listen to this account by Nicola Strickland, a scientist visiting the Caribbean um, in the island of Tobago in the year 2000. She says this, I rashly took a bite of this fruit and found it pleasantly sweet. My friend also partook at my suggestion. This sounds so much like a book of Genesis already, okay? (laughs) Moments later, we noticed... Things have gone wrong, again, like the book of Genesis. Moments later, we noticed a strange peppery feeling in our mouths, which gradually progressed to a burning, tearing sensation and tightness of the throat. The symptoms worsened over a couple of hours until we could barely swallow solid food because of the excruciating pain and the feeling of huge, obstructing, pharyngeal lump. Sadly, The pain was exacerbated by most alcoholic beverages. (laughs) Uh, The remedy did not work, although mildly appeased by pina coladas, but more so by milk alone. Okay, so these people ate, and then they're like, give me something, give me anything. Pina coladas make it a little better. Over the next eight hours, our oral symptoms began to subside, but our cervical lymph nodes became very tender and easily palpable. Recounting our experience to the locals elicited frank horror and incredulity. Such was the fruit's poisonous reputation. So, if you are ever going to take a trip to the Caribbean or Florida, please, before you go, make sure you know what beach apples look like and never ever touch them. Because it's not just the taste. Okay? As brutal as that sounds, it, it gets worse. All right? Not only is eating the fruit bad for you, just touching the tree is poisonous. The bark of the tree and the leaves, the branches, all of it is coated in a poisonous sap. When it comes into contact with your skin, it causes burn-like blisters. And God forbid that you would touch your eyes after you touched the tree because you would be temporarily blinded. Boy, does this sound like Genesis over and over and over. Now, this tree, fun fact, has been used historically as a weapon. Uh, The aboriginal peoples of years past would use the beech tree sap to dip their arrows in 
and so they would have poisoned arrows to fire. It's believed that this is how explorer uh, Juan Ponce de Leon died in 1521 because the Calusa people shot him with a beech tree dipped arrow. Eli, they might have said, arrowed. Ow, my skin. But here's the thing. The tree and its fruit look like apples. It's not until the fruit is harvested that all the difference in the world is revealed. And this is exactly what Jesus is going to show us about the fruit of our spiritual lives. Some of us are apple trees. Some are beech apples. But none of us have to be. So, Matthew chapter 13 We'll be looking at verses 24 through 30, and then we'll be looking at verses 36 through 43. Beginning in verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Now, I don't know about you, but there are many times that I will read a parable, scratch my head, and think, Jesus, what are you talking about? Because speaking in parables is often confusing to our ears, right? Well, it just so happens that this particular parable has Jesus explaining what on earth he's talking about. How convenient. Beginning in verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. I take great comfort in that verse, okay, because these are the guys who spent the most time with Jesus, the guys who knew him best. You would think the guys who would understand him the most, but these guys are a lot like us, and so they go to Jesus, and they're like, all right, Jesus, what? <laughs> Explain, please, tell me, Lord, what, what are you talking about? Verse 37, he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, okay, I, he, he says, I am the sower of the good seed. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So, Jesus makes it very simple. He explains to these dullards exactly what he's talking about, which is perfect for dullards like us. So he, he lists for them what every single part of that parable represents. Himself, the world, those who are faithful to him, those who are not faithful to him, and the result that will come at the end of the age. Now, if we set this in context, this is in a chapter where there are eight parables that are spoken. And just before he tells the parable of the weeds, he tells the parable of the sower. And he also explains that one. Um, And in the parable of the sower, Jesus talks about, again, himself and, and the gospel casting out the seed of the gospel, and he compares different types of soil. He talks about uh, uh, soil that is along a path. He talks about rocky soil. He talks about soil that is filled with thorns. And, and then he talks about good soil. And, and he explains that this particular passage is about the, the, the soil of a person's heart. That some people will hear the gospel and immediately reject it. Okay, those are the ones that are on the, the path. It, it says the birds come and immediately take that, that seed. There is no root whatsoever. Then, then there are those who hear the gospel and maybe they believe for a little bit, but they, they don't have any opportunity to take root because the soil of their hearts is so hard. It, it, it's rocky. Then there are those who hear the gospel and it seems like they take root and, and they're excited for a short time, but then they get choked out by the world. And then finally he says that there's a type of soil in our hearts where the gospel is preached and it produces a plant that reproduces 30, 60, 100 fold. This is the good soil um, that is uh, uh, um, open to the gospel of Jesus. So following that, in, in this parable, he then says that just because something grows and produces, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a good thing. So he he takes the parable of the sower and he adds a layer to it. Because what we're talking about in in this scenario is soil in which something grows. So he's talking about soil in which things don't grow when he's talking about the gospel. Now he's saying, now the, the master has this field with good soil. And he plants good seed. But then an enemy comes and he plants bad seed. And the bad seed grows right along with the good seed. And it also produces. In other words, not all fruit is good fruit. Now, in this particular picture, we've got, uh, depending on your translation, it might say wheat and weeds. It might say wheat and tares. Um, My particular translation says weeds. And these plants, the, the, the wheat and the tares, are indistinguishable from one another until the very last moment, okay? Until the head of grain appears or the, the ear of grain appears, the fruit, so to speak. Until the apple grows, these two types of plants side by side look exactly alike. The tares referred to here, the weeds, um, uh, is a plant called the bearded darnel. Now, typically I am partial to bearded things, 
Um, most, actually, I think all of the men in here are bearded. Yes. What a church we have. Man, there's not a single dude in here who's not bearded, other than my nine-year-old. But someday. Um, typically, I'm partial to bearded things. Not so much in this scenario. The bearded darnel looks very much like wheat as it sprouts. And it even has an ear similar to the ear of wheat as it develops. And until these two plants are ripe, they're, they're almost identical. But once they ripen, they can be distinguished. However, if someone is lazy, it would be very easy to harvest these two things at the same time, mixed together. And if that happens, the results are very bad. Um, if bearded darnel kernels are mixed together with wheat and a person makes bread with these uh, mixed seeds together, this is bad bread, okay, dangerous bread. Eating bearded darnel makes a person dizzy, nauseous, or worse. So, there is good fruit and there is bad fruit. There's apples and there's death apples. And Jesus tells us that often they're growing side by side, indistinguishable from each other. So, what should we do? If you're taking notes, here is point number one in one of my wordiest points ever. Know that the two will grow side by side. And it is not up to us to uproot the weeds. We need to stay connected to the plant and let our fruitfulness increase. So we have to know that the good and the bad are going to grow side by side. And it is not up to us to uproot weeds. It is our responsibility to stay connected to the plant and to let our own fruitfulness increase. If you missed last week's sermon about abiding in Christ... Go back and listen to it because that's exactly what this responsibility is describing. Um, Look here at verses 27 and 28. The servants of the master of the house came to him and said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? So, these servants notice as harvest time ha- has, has arrived that there are two types of plants growing here. Okay, they've spent all this time cultivating the field. They've spent all this time growing these things. And then it becomes clear. Uh, there's a problem. There, there's weeds here. And so they go to the master and they're like, okay, uh, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to pull out the, these weeds? Do you, do you want us to, to attack these? They, they essentially say, uh, Lord, do we attack the imposter? And the master's response, surprisingly, is no. Now, I, I've talked about this a little bit before. I am not a farmer, okay? I do not have a green thumb. Whatever color is the opposite of green is what my thumbs are. I have trouble growing grass. There's a huge patch of dead grass in my front yard that's almost as big as the stage. I don't know why. Okay? It could be weevils. It could be some type of evil. It could be a supernatural curse. I have no idea. I don't know anything about farming. I would be the person that says, hey, this makes sense. Let's, 
just pull the weeds, right? Let's, let's pull them out. And the master says to these servants, don't do that. Let them grow side by side. Let these weeds be growing alongside the wheat. He tells them, what I want you to do is focus on making sure that the crops are well watered and taken care of. Look at verses 29 and 30. He says, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers to gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Our job is not to attack people that we perceive to be the enemy. Our job is to abide in Christ. Again, if you missed last week where we talked about what exactly that means to abide in Christ, I I encourage you to go back and listen to that. But I, I think you will agree that we live in a time in which we have a militant spirit about us in many ways. The church and politics have become so closely intermarried. And our strategy often mirrors the same strategy as that of the world. If I see a threat... I go after the threat. And we have made people the threat. We have made other people the target. And so much of our time in church and so much of our time as Christians is spent attacking other people. Even though scripture tells us very clearly, your battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities of darkness. We spend far too much time making flesh and blood the target. So much of our energy is spent doing that, that that when surveys are taken of non-churched people, what are the words that immediately come to your mind when you hear the word Christian? Okay, so when when non-Christians are surveyed, what's the first word that comes to your mind when you hear the word Christian? You know what the, the first words that come up are? Intolerant, hateful, and homophobic. Those are, the, those are the words that come to mind when people just say Christian. Why is that? We, we might look at that and go, well, they're wrong because we're not that way. I'm not intolerant. I'm not a bigot. I don't hate anyone. Those people are just wrong. But we have to understand that stereotypes exist for a reason, Right? And in this particular case, it's because so much of our energy in the church has been spent on attacking people. So much of our energy in church has been spent on driving home points rather than welcoming people in the love of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't defend truth, okay? I'm not saying that, that we shouldn't stand up against lies, okay? You guys know that apologetics is one of my passions, I'm not at all saying that we just uh, let any lie uh, remain uh, unaddressed. There is absolutely a time and a place to address lies. But at the end of the day, we have to realize that our responsibility is fertilizing, not fighting. When, When the master says here in verse 30, 
let both grow together until the harvest. What that means, very practically, is that the master is telling his servants, you are going to go and take care of the weeds the same way that you're taking care of the wheat. You're going to care for these two types of plants in the very same way. You're going to water them both. You're going to make sure that critters are staying away from both. You're going to do the things that farmers do to make sure that their crops grow healthy and that their harvest is plentiful. It's not as if you're picking around one to take care of the other. He says, let both grow together. So we as as people need to be loving the weeds just as much as we love the wheat. We need to be taking care of the weeds just as much as we are taking care of the wheat. And our energy must be spent abiding in Christ, being connected to the vine, meditating daily in his word, spending time daily in prayer, letting the word speak to us personally, looking at scripture like we're looking into a mirror that tells us how to live. There will be a time and a place for defending truth, but we are called to fertilize, not to fight. You guys know that um, the recent political system, or or season, I should say, the, the, the recent political season revealed so much about the church in America that is ugly. Scrolling through Facebook, reading through Twitter, and seeing the things that Christians are saying and doing, lobbing vitriol at, at whoever they think is the enemy. Guys, that's not our responsibility. Our calling is to love and to care and to tend and to fertilize, knowing, as we will see later on, a tear doesn't have to stay a tear because God can change that into wheat. But our responsibility is to abide in Christ so that our own fruitfulness may increase. Because earlier in chapter 13, in the parable of the sower, in verse 8, he says, Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Have you ever wondered why some produce a hundredfold? Some 60, some 30. It's not because the master of the field isn't doing his job. Okay, there is an element in, in which we have a choice about how well our own plant is being cared for. We, we have some measure of control here about how much we are pouring in to pursuing Jesus. And if we're fully committed, if we're following after him, if we're abiding in Christ, if we are, if we are living in his love then we're going to produce a hundredfold. If we're lazy about that, well, then we're not going to produce nearly as much. So we need to focus on being fruitful people by tending the crop of the gospel. Point number two. Know that God will know the difference and that he will separate them out in the end. We have to know That yes, there's a difference between the wheat and the tares. And maybe, in some cases, we see it. 
and we want to do something about it. Maybe we want to pull it up. But our trust is not in ourselves. Our trust is in the Lord, and he says that he will separate them out in the end. Again, in verse 30, he says, Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, and gather the wheat into my barn. I can assure you beyond a shadow of a doubt, God knows exactly what he's doing. The good farmer here, the the master of the field, is looking out into the world and he sees exactly what's happening. He is aware of all that is taking place. It is not as if in our prayers we are cluing God in to something that he does not know about. Okay? When these workers come to him and they say, there's weeds in here. It's not like the master goes, what? What is happening? How did this happen? This is a catastrophe. Did you guys do this? No, notice that the master immediately knows. What happened? In, in verse 25, the master says this. Um, or, or I'm sorry, in, in verse um, 28, he said to them, an enemy has done this. He knows immediately. Yep, I know what's going on. The enemy has done this. How did the enemy do this? It tells us in verse 25. While his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the seed and went away. It's devious. This is, this is farming terrorism to sow these weeds among good crops. But the master is not unaware. The master knows. He, he immediately recognizes exactly what has taken place. And we need to trust in the knowledge and the work of our master. We, we understand that we have an enemy, right? The enemy is at work. And the enemy is evil. But here's what else we need to know. The enemy is going to lose. The enemy is going to lose. Okay? Let's point out something here that we need to keep in mind. Jesus always wins. Always. Jesus always wins. We know that our enemy is crafty. And that his methods are devious. Like in this passage, what the enemy does is he waits till all the farmers are asleep. And he sneaks in and he plants these things when no one is looking. In the dead of night, under the shroud of darkness, he does his work. While everyone else is unaware, the enemy works. And, and why did he do this? It's because he is trying to destroy everything that is owned by the master of the field. All that the master has invested in, the enemy is trying to destroy. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But the owner is too smart to fall for the enemy's tricks. The enemy ultimately, is unsuccessful in his attempt. This this enemy in in this parable comes in and is convinced, if I just plant these things here, it's going to ruin the crops. And had the master not instructed his servants in the right way, it would have. Because if his servants just go out and they charge these weeds, they would ruin the wheat harvest as well. The owner stops them. And then at the end of the story, the harvest is plentiful and is gathered into the barn 
And those weeds that were sowed by the enemy are taken out and thrown away and burned. The enemy is unsuccessful. In the same way, we need to keep in mind at all times that Satan is going to lose. It's going to happen. It's a guarantee. Because there are times when it seems like he's winning in the world, right? There, there are times where it seems like he's got the upper hand. When we look out into the world today, we can see corruption. We, we can see evil. We can see all of the ways that things have become twisted. We, we might even think to ourselves, boy, the world is getting worse and worse and worse and worse. We ask ourselves, God, if you're at work, why is evil so prevalent in the world? If the gospel is true, if you really are on the throne, why all this evil? Why, why all this sin? Aren't you going to do something about it? Why, why is all this stuff going on and you're just sitting up in heaven doing nothing? God, why aren't you doing anything? Guys, we need to understand that he's not just sitting up in heaven doing nothing. He is looking out at a harvest field and knowing, I know exactly how to take care of this. And it's a long game. I know exactly how to take care of this and it's going to take time. And it's not going to be the way that you think I need to act. I will not fail. What I do will never fail. And at the end, there is going to be a bountiful harvest. Satan wants you to believe that right now everything is lost. Satan wants you to look at all the weeds that are there and go, how are we going to get a harvest from this? How is this ever going to turn around? How, how is this ever going to produce the type of fruit that scripture promises is supposed to come from this? And God says, trust me. Just, just trust me. When Satan comes and, and brings lies and accusations and, and, and he tries to, to tear you down. I love, I love the way that, that KB puts it in the song, Not Today, Satan. He says, if he brings up your past... Bring up his future. We know that the enemy is going to lose. God is going to take care of everything in the end. That's a promise. Where does that leave us now? Abide. Abide in Christ. Abide in his word. Abide in his presence. Abide in his church. Abide in truth. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Our only task right now is to fix our eyes on him and follow one step at a time, knowing that he will defeat the enemy and there will be good fruit that comes from that. Finally, point number three. Know what kind of plant you are to know what kind of fruit you'll grow. The thing is, I cannot look into your heart. I can't do it. None of us can do that. None of us can look into the heart of someone and know exactly where they stand before Jesus. If we could look into each other's hearts, truly, I mean this, if we could really look into each other's hearts and see what's really there, none of us would ever want to be around each other, <laughs> okay? We would all avoid each other like the plague. I know for sure you would avoid me. 
You, you think, oh man, our pastor is awesome, right? That, that's what you think? Amen, right? I'm not. I'm a jerk, okay? If, you, if we could see into each other's hearts, we would avoid one another. We cannot truly see whether someone around us is truly saved. Now, Jesus talks about you will know them by their fruit, and there will, be, there will be signs, obviously, that come up over time. But ultimately, at the end of the day, only God knows, right? Because the thing about tares, weeds, tares look saved. They act saved. Maybe they even believe themselves to be saved. But they ain't, though. Now, we could probably think of examples of people that we've been around who have claimed it, and we go, yeah, I don't, I don't think they are, right? I mean, I've been around church deacons at times, and I'm like, yeah, I don't know if he knows Jesus. <laughs> but ultimately, at the end of the day, you could have two people sitting next to each other whose lives look pretty similar to the rest of us, but we can't really tell. But you know who can tell? You. You can look into your own heart. You can know what goes through there. You actually do know the things that go through your head. You actually do know whether or not you have ever come to a place where you have surrendered to Jesus. We've talked about this before in in this series that being a Christian is not about believing a correct set of facts. As if we could look at a a fact sheet and say, okay, check off every one of those I mentally assent to that, now I'm a Christian. That's not what it is. It's not about believing the right set of facts. Nor is it merely about performing a correct set of actions. As if there's a, a list of things to do that we could check off and go, all right, now that I do all these things, I'm in. That's, that's not how it works either. It is about being wholly surrendered to Jesus. And it is out of that surrender that right actions and right fruit comes. One thing that's interesting to note about this parable is that the disciples specifically ask him about this one. Again, there are a number of parables um, in this passage, um, and Jesus explains two of them. But what we specifically see in verse uh, 36 is that this is the one that the disciples ask him about. Jesus volunteers a definition for the parable of the sower. But this one... The disciples ask. He left the crowds, went into the, into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Um, perhaps, maybe, conjecture on my part, maybe they were concerned that some of them might be shown to be tear rather than wheat. And if that's the reason why they asked, they ended up being correct. Judas. Judas is revealed at the end to be tare rather than wheat. Now, the disciples didn't know that that was going to happen. Even when Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, 
one of you is going to betray me. The disciples look around and they go, is it me? Is it me? But I can guarantee you beyond a shadow of a doubt, there's one guy sitting at the table that knows exactly who it's going to be. Judas knows because Judas has already had a meeting with the high priest. He's got the bag of money in his pocket. And when Jesus is saying, one of you is going to betray me, Judas is like, I don't know, you? He knows. The other disciples have confusion, but Judas, Judas knows. Each one of us can know for sure where we stand before the Lord. I may not be able to look into your soul and see this person is saved. But you absolutely can stand before God and ask, am I wheat or am I weed? Now you might ask the question, well, how do you know for sure? Because I don't want us to fall into this trap of having to pray a prayer over and over and over and over just to make sure that we did it the right way so that we know that we're saved. Um, J.D. Greer has a, a, a good book about that if you're interested in it. But we can ask the question, have I ever married up with Jesus? Have I ever come to a place where I've entered into a covenant relationship with Jesus? Where it's not just about checking things off a religious checklist. Where it's not just about going to church and, and reading the Bible, though those things are incredibly important. Though it, it, it's not just about assenting to a proper set of facts or or doing a proper set of things have i ever come to a place where i have said i I surrender to you jesus i want to give you everything i want you to be the lord of my life that means the master that means you're in control that means you get to tell me whatever i'm supposed to do and i follow after you i am your bond servant the, the Greek word there is doulos. And that, that, that picture is a person who willingly enters into servitude. That, that, that's a person that says, I am going to marry myself to a master. In, in a slave and master relationship, I'm going to enter into this and be their doulos. And I can tell you for sure, you can know for sure if you have done that. You can know for sure if you are standing before God having done that, or if you are standing before God as, as an imposter. Because here's what I want you guys to know. As long as you're breathing, it's not too late for a tear to become wheat. We can't do that in our own farms, but Jesus can. We're talking about the guy who turned water into wine just by speaking. So he can look at a tear who wants to become wheat and he can make that happen. So maybe the life that you're living looks a lot like the life of a a surrendered servant. But you know exactly where you stand. Ask yourself. I don't care how long you've been going to church. I don't care how long you've been around other Christians. I don't care how assimilated you are into Christian culture. You may even be a church leader, okay? Pastors that have never surrendered to Jesus. Examine your heart. Go before the Lord and say, have I ever surrendered to you truly? And if you have not, why wait? Why wait? Let it be tonight. I speak this to you guys here and to anyone who's watching online or listening to our podcast um, at, at some point later on. 
the fruit is going to come, guaranteed. But what kind of fruit is gonna come from your life? Are you going to abide in Christ? Are you going to live for him entirely and completely? Or are you going to be a death apple that looks a lot like apples, tastes like apples, but in the end is poisonous and is thrown away and cast out and separated? That is a decision that I encourage you to make tonight. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth of your word. God, I pray for conviction. God, I pray that that your spirit would speak clearly to every person here or listening or watching. God, that we would each examine our hearts before you. God, that your spirit would speak individually to each one of us, showing each one of us where we stand before you. Inviting us Lord, inviting us to surrender. God, we know that this is not about guilt. This is, this is not about putting pressure on people. God, we, we, we know that you invite people with your love, that you are a good master, willing to lay your life down for your servants. And so God, if there are people who have never surrendered to you, God, I pray that right now you would invite them, that you would draw them, that you would make it incredibly clear that, that tonight is the night of surrender. And whatever stands in the way, God, I pray that you would be bigger than whatever that is. God, I pray for every single one of us that has surrendered to you, but holding things back, are are putting things in the soil that's affecting how much fruit we're gonna grow. God, I pray that you would teach each one of us how to abide in you every day. God, that you would increase our fruitfulness as a congregation. That this would be a church that bears much fruit. That we would be people in our, in our lives as we follow after you that, that produce a hundredfold. And Lord, whatever stands in the way of that, I pray that you would convict us in those places. That you give us the courage to obediently follow after you no matter what it takes. No matter what it takes. Lord, I pray for this church that as this fruit increases in us, more and more people would be invited in. As this fruit increases, Lord, that that more and more people would be affected for the kingdom, that light would pierce the darkness, that that your spirit would do an incredible work in our community, and that this church would be a part of what you are doing to change the world. God, I pray that as we sing this closing song of worship to you, that each one of us would take the time to examine ourselves before you. That as we sing, Lord, let it be out of an honest place. May we quiet our hearts, let your voice speak, and give us the discernment to know what you are saying. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you would stand, we'll close in worship.